Okay. Hey, James, Ooh, welcome. Hey. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bud. Nothing but mess. <laughs> nice. All right. This is Seeger Storytime Episode 2, and we're here at Rome Free Ranch in beautiful Hot Springs, Montana. I'm Elliot, this is Case, and that's Matson, and we're here interviewing James Barkman. James, do you mind introducing yourself to our beautiful guests? What up, what up? Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my name is James Barkman, like they said. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania originally. I live in San Luis Obispo at the moment, and I'm here with the Seeker crew. Psyched to be here for story time round two. Nice. Hell yeah, stoked to have you here, man. Yeah. Thanks for that's having great. me, boys. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. How old are you? 26. Mm, that's how old we are. Exactly. <laughs> Mid to late 20s. Damn. I don't want that one to come out. <laughs> They're still in there. So you currently live where? Like, as in, like, what apparatus of, like, vehicle do you live in? <laughs> well, so currently, I'm kind of splitting my time between a sailboat in Morro Bay, which is in, like, San Luis Obispo County on the central coast of California. And I've lived in a 1976 VW van for the last, like, five, six years now. I guess I kind of lost track Damn. of the time. But at the moment, I live on a sailboat when I'm in San Luis Obispo, and when I'm traveling, I kind of live in my van. So I've kind of been in alternative, like unconventional, or lived in unconventional places, if you will, for the last six years. <laughs> just feels natural to live that way, or? I guess, man. Mentality. I mean, like, when I started, when I first moved into my bus, I was living in an apartment at the time. And I got my bus, I was kind of into Volkswagens, and when I got it, I was just camping in it most nights out of the week, and okay. it kind of naturally evolved into this thing where I'm like, well, if what? I'm living in my bus or my van most of the time, why don't I just move into it, and why yeah. am I paying for this apartment that I'm never in? Totally. So it kind of just happened naturally a while back, and I guess I've never looked back. Was that in Pennsylvania? It was in Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah. and then you drove all the way out here? Drove all the way out to the West Coast uh, about six years ago for um, a work opportunity with a photographer in California, and I've kind of been doing my own um, like freelance photo thing. I'm a photographer by trade. Okay. So, yeah, I feel uh, that. So, so no, no, you got it. What yeah. would you say your skill set is? Is it photographer, climber, mountaineer? Sure. I mean, that's always kind of an interesting question because I feel like now we live in such an age of opportunity where you don't have to be one thing. You can kind of be all these different things. So there's opportunity for it, which is crazy and, and awesome. And I would definitely, first and foremost, be a photographer. That's how I make money. That's kind of how I make a living. But also, I would consider myself a climber or mountaineer more specifically. I yeah, feel that. Yeah. So when you get hired for gigs from various companies, whatever it is, is it brought up ahead of time where they say it's like a mountaineering shoot, for example, are they kind of hiring you for that as well to kind of help assist on that? Or you just have to know how to mountaineer to get the shots? Is that kind of part of it? Yeah. I mean, like there's, I feel like it, there's not really any formula. I mean, 
at times I feel like I'll be brought on to assist on a project because I like in the mountains or something because I have the skill set to be able to do that. And then at times I feel like I'll be I'll be supported to do a climb or an expedition um, and kind of, you know, get sponsored, if you will, to do that. So okay. the, the line definitely gets a little blurry. But um, I think, again, we're living in such a time where there's like opportunity to kind of do just more than one thing. It's like you can sure. you can make it and, and you don't have to just be this like one you know, specific thing, there's freedom to do more than that and to kind of pioneer into these different areas. What do your, what do your roots in Pennsylvania look like? Because from what I know of you and us going on trips together, you're an outdoorsman to me and I see you hunt or throw an ax or your bow and arrow. So what, <laughs> what are your roots in Pennsylvania? What does that look like? So I was raised, born and raised in Pennsylvania in a zone called Lancaster, which is... I sound Amish. It's <laughs> pretty Amish. <laughs> you assume correct. Oh, had a feeling. And it's definitely like a rural area. And when I was growing up there, you're kind of like bummed on it because that's all you know. It feels pretty small. Like you're not really connected with like the world and what's happening in it, yeah. I guess. But... It feels pretty small, but now that I've gotten older, I've appreciated it so much more. But basically, my upbringing looked like just a lot of time outside. Um, some of my earliest memories with my dad are growing up, like hunting with him before I could legally hunt or carry a gun. I would go with him and and just like sit in the cold and be so psyched to to hunt and be with my dad and be in the woods. So sick. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely like growing. For those of you that have grown up in rural areas, it's just a whole different experience. I mean, it's like I grew up with horses on a small farm. Um, and actually, for a while, my dad had this ostrich farm, like ostrich operation, which was super random. One ostrich or multiple ostriches? <laughs> so many ostriches. How many we talking? Like, How many ostriches? Do you know, I don't even 50? know. 50? No, I feel like, I mean, they came, and, they came and went. Skin blasted. <laughs> They came and went, but in the 90s, the ostrich industry just, like, fully blew up. The ostrich <laughs> industry for eggs or meat? or It was like, it was like the meat. Ostrich farm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think of it as, like, a petting zoo. Like, what do you do with them? Definitely not a petting zoo, dude. So, Those things are, like, dinosaurs. They're so gnarly with their crazy yeah. talons. But uh, it was, like, the meat, it was the, it was the leather, it was the eggs, kind of those Whoa. things. Like, oh, yeah. the, meat's a del- the meat still is a delicacy. Do if people you go to die from ostriches? For sure, they get like kicked and really gored by them. Oh, yeah, the oh males are always so. <laughs> so nice. Did you ever ride one, dude? No. Okay, so if I oh. grew up now, like if I had ostriches right now, I'd for sure ride them, or I'd like make my kids ride them or something. But at the time, it's like that's all you know. It's not like weird to yeah. or out of the ordinary to have to grow up on an ostrich little farm yeah, because that's all you know <laughs> not right? out of the ordinary Super yeah so yeah. now i'm like i can't believe i didn't ride them. yeah, yeah <laughs> like, straight, train up. Them. <laughs> straight up train them but little they minions. they were super scary they have like, little bits like how do you uh They're huge <laughs> i have no i have no idea <laughs> where did they descend from like what was before not where that, what was the evolution <laughs> of the ostrich dinosaurs straight dinosaur like t-rex think, yeah. to a fucking ostrich there was nothing they, in between they definitely look like at least the crazy talons, man, look like straight yeah. talons. Like yeah. the crazy, like, you know, roosters have the crazy yeah, yeah. thing. Can you imagine if we had those? Dude. I you guys don't have wish. one? You have one? <laughs> oh! oh. <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with all that. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, where you grew up? Your so that was kind of what it was. Like, my, my dad was psyched on that for a while. 
ostrich industry blew up. We always had horses and cows and sheep and goats and things like that. Um, and but all that to say that like it was definitely a very conservative traditional upbringing, which in hindsight I'm more appreciative of. But at the time you're like, dang, I just want to get out of here. Like for sure, you just feel kind of small town. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like, yeah, I get that stuck. Um, but I think what one thing that really helped or one thing that really did for me is I just, I felt like it kind of lit a fire in me to go see the world and kind of go do my thing. And I think sometimes when you grow up in an area that has access, whether to like network or, you know, crazy locations that you take it for granted. But when you don't grow up around that, it's so precious and special when you have to work so hard to go to the mountains to go snowboarding or go to the ocean to surf or go do these things. It's like so much more, for sure. Like special, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that I look back on and I'm grateful for because now I feel like I just haven't lost that fire. And if anything, it's like, it's just right. growing, right? And I'm that's just more psyched than ever yeah. to, to do those things. And again, to like go back to your questions, like I just want to work towards this, to, towards sustainability and be able to like climb till the day I die and till the day I die and surf till the day I die and still, you know, like, be able to support all these hobbies and yeah and that type of thing do you have any outrageous like climbing goals or anything that is crazy that not many people do i mean by crazy it depends who you compare that to like some people that's like to climbers things might be you know normal like for example i have goals to i want to climb k2 in the next five years which is yeah yeah a mountain in the himalayas yeah, and the whole brand named after it. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it was like snowboards, right? Yeah. Is that what it was? I had one. I rollerblades. I had one of those. Rollerblades of that. I had. I'm pretty sure. Oh, it was yeah, they were K2 rollerblades. I had oh, really? Yeah. Swear with the link. <laughs> Sponsored by K2. Yeah. <laughs> what What were your teen years like? Oh God. Teen, teen years. <laughs> <laughs> what were your preteens like? Like 10, 11. <laughs> but yeah, teenage years, man, were just like, I don't know. I feel like it was kind of like most kids you're kind of just trying to figure out what you want to do like who you are i feel like that was defining was my dad um and my parents lived in belize for a while and my dad had all these photos of like his his years that he that they lived in the jungle and stuff and it was just like hundreds and hundreds of slide photos that we'd like friends would come over and we'd have like slide night right you'd project it all onto the wall and you'd go through all these photos like my dad like killing these gnarly snakes and like cruising through the gnarly what was he doing down there dugouts so they lived they were actually missionaries there but basically what they were doing was like helping these people these like people that didn't have any access to electricity or power or anything kind of help them become more like mostly it was like medical i guess if i think about it the stuff that they were doing was like bringing medical aid to people that would otherwise just like die of malaria or whatever damn well speaking of central america i mean you passed through it on your journey from alaska down to patagonia correct Correct. Which you did on a motorcycle with your brother? No, no, with my two friends. The one guy, I think is my third cousin. I don't know, actually. What? I did this moto trip from the top of Alaska to the bottom of South America that you would kind of refer to as the Pan-American road or highway. Uh, We just kind of called it the Pan-American trail. Mm -hmm. And essentially what it is, is the longest continuous road system in the world. It's about 30,000 miles till it was all said and done. We did almost 40,000. But 
with the exception of the Darien Gap, which is basically like an undeveloped, unpaved section between Panama and Colombia. A lot of people think there's like, the, I didn't realize this, but a lot of people think the Panama Canal is what separates Colombia from Panama, but it's not. It's actually just jungle. And it's occupied by gnarly like FARC rebels, like crazy gorillas that'll just cut your head off and kill wow. you. So it it's pretty much just impossible to do that. Some people have, but um, for the most part, it's the Pan American is the longest continuous road system, and it started as uh, with an as an idea with my one friend Alan, who's like, man, the day I graduate college, I'm gonna hop on a bike and I'm gonna do the Pan Am. And he invited me and our other friend, Jeremy, who's also his cousin. And that was kind of something we talked about, you know, as like kids or as teenagers, you're like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this when I, you know what I mean? Like when yeah. I get out of school or when I have money, whatever. And I, I feel like we all talk about that stuff, but we're like, man, like, are we going to talk about this or are we going to do it? Right. Yeah. So one day I got a call from Alan and I was living out on the West coast ready in my van. And he's like, yo, James. I'm going to do the Pan Am when I graduate from school in May of 2017. Are you in or you're out? And I'm like, I'm doing it without you is what he said. I'm like, yeah, hell well, yeah, I'm in. So we kind of just started working, saving up money. We left in the spring of 2017 in, in May, drove up to Alaska, um, climbed Mount Denali. And just to warm up, <laughs> just for a warm, warm up. up. Yeah. Do you, do, did you buy bikes ahead of time or did you get bikes in Alaska? Yeah, I guess I'm going to head myself. So kind of, uh, we decided to do the whole trip on Suzuki DR650s, which is, in my opinion, probably the best bike you can do that on. And when it comes to things like this, like a lot of people think you need like the best kit or the gnarliest bike or like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you just need to be kitted. But we bought all our bikes on Craigslist for no more than 1500 bikes. 1500 bucks. My friend Jeremy bought his bike for like $1,000 and like a 45 handgun. Just hey, traded it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Just, we're, we're just scrapping. We're like, yeah. we don't need the gnarliest gear or equipment or even experience because none of us had done anything like that. So we bought the, we searched for these bikes on Craigslist, kind of like all over the country, finally found them. And um, basically our whole, our whole deal was like, we, we want to just do this on a shoestring budget, not because, well, mostly because that's all we had, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. but also to prove a point, like, I yeah. mean, I, I feel like we all see, you know, these gnarly, like sponsored trips where everything's like all kitted out yeah, and, yeah. Like, it's way too much. Yeah. It, it's like, like so one thing that was, has always been really inspiring for me was Yvonne Chenard's and Doug Thompson's crazy Patagonia trip. I mean, yeah, for yeah. a yeah. lot of people. You know, like cruising down to, I mean, that's how Patagonia as the brand and the North Face started yeah. was them doing this trip, hopping in a, you know, like a scrappy van and just hitting the road and like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I mean, they were super underqualified and like, didn't, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's, no one really does that stuff. Yeah, as you learn much on anymore. the way, you yeah. know, try and buffer it with. For sure. So that was kind of like our process going into it. It's like, let's get these ghetto bikes and let's do it. And initially it was just going to be a, a moto trip, like, right? Like ride from Alaska to Patagonia. And Alan, the guy, my friend who kind of had this idea initially was like, this is the hardest thing I can think of. Like, this is what I want to do. Like the day I graduate college. And as when I start, when I got brought onto the crew, I'm like, well, if, if we're going to be passing through all these crazy mountain ranges, why don't we just climb? Like this is, we'll never have this opportunity the rest of the rest of our lives. Yeah. To be passing through these world-class yeah. climbing, you know, objectives and 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 mountain ranges, 
So we kind of just committed to that. We're like, Let, let's climb. So we packed our all our climbing stuff onto our bikes. We made these custom panniers and we started with Mount Denali in Alaska. Um, so half the trip was like this kind of mountaineering expedition type thing. And then the other half was like this riding thing. And equally, I feel like both were equally as gnarly. Like I got frostbite riding plenty of times in Alaska, just so gnarly. Yeah, <laughs> no was... gloves or did you just go through the gloves? Yeah, gloves. But man, when you're riding it in, you know, below freezing temperatures at 60 miles an hour, the wind chill is actually really crazy, yeah, right? But this is in May, right? Yeah, but it's pretty gnarly in the Arctic. In oh, Well, I guess sure. we didn't go to the Arctic in May, but in, um, in Alaska, I mean, it's just... Brutal. It's, cold. it's, cold. <laughs> it's just cold. Yeah. Uh, but back to the Pan American Trail, was that the first time that you rode a bike and started climbing? Because I didn't hear any any biking before that. Right. Um, I mean, to be honest, none of us had done like a trip over a week long at that point. So it was definitely like a maiden voyage. And we're like, geez, can we even do this? I mean, and it is definitely the hardest thing I've ever done and hopefully will do. I mean, it's the most I want to suffer in this lifetime, I think. <laughs> but we hadn't done anything like that. We hadn't climbed anything quite that gnarly. And I, we had all been, we'd all climbed stuff. We'd been psyched on climbing. Um, I'd been slowly moving more into mountaineering. But as, like, if, if anybody that's listening climbs, you know, it's like such a hurdle to get all the right equipment. Obviously, it's kind of dangerous in the mountains. So you don't want to just like, Go. go for it yeah you yeah. kind of need to know what you're doing and a friend of mine sterling taylor had climbed denali the previous season and i hit him up i was like hey sterling do you want to help get us up to denali like act as our unofficial guide and he's like hell yeah i'm psyched so i definitely credit him as to you know helping me and us kind of you know learn the ropes and, and literally yeah, yeah. Fuck, yeah. Literally. literally yeah and kind of know what we were doing but um, I think, like, we learned so much on that trip about, like, kind of mentally, physically, like, what we're capable of. Like, I think the bit, guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you, you don't, you can't wait until you're fully experienced or dialed in something to go for it. You kind of just need to take the leap of faith, you know? Sure, yeah. And I think that's very much what that trip was for us. It was like, geez, like, I, I don't even know if we can do this. Like, if we are qualified or have the experience or we don't we didn't know what we were doing but we went for it anyway and yeah. thankfully came out on the other end in did one you have piece. any near-death experiences on that route the first week actually the first probably in the i think it was the fourth day of the trip we were riding up to alaska because we had to hit denali um we had like these these flights booked for base camp so the way denali works is like you schedule this ranger meeting you schedule your flights to base camp like everything's pretty like there's a lot of people that want to climb it so it's pretty critical to hit that okay um and we were just riding like 500 miles a day through rain through snow oh. it was so gnarly and a day is crazy yeah it, sounds it was miserable hard. It sounds hard <laughs> and on the way to alaska on the alaskan highway there's this gnarly grizzly bear that crossed the road like big old male grizzly bear biggest one i've ever seen and we're all like holy shit that's like we turned around and tried to see it. I was trying to take a photo of it. And my friend, my two friends, Jeremy and Alan, were on the side, of, like on the shoulder, like kind of in front of it, trying to look at it. And I was in the middle, like on the double yellow, trying to shoot a photo of them. And all of a sudden, a semi passed me at like 70 oh. miles an hour. 
in and there's no there's no shoulder on the Alaskan highway at least in that section it just drops oh, off oh my god <laughs> some metal or something there's no shoulder it just drops off so he couldn't swerve around okay and the wind of the of him passing almost blew me over and it's one of those things that like when you have a near death experience like it's it happens so fast you don't really think about it right, right? because you you didn't yeah, see it coming just it's, just, it's there and it's yeah. gone and like oh that was close yeah and that was def that was like the first close call so we had plenty of close calls close calls on the bikes i mean driving through riding through latin america is insane i feel like you just have moments where you're like wow that that could have been it in what way like talking about just traffic or? people pulling in front of you like you kind of whipping over in like a car yeah. you know i mean latin america is just insane like you can i feel like you can sit at an intersection and watch people crash and die it's just no one adheres to traffic laws. It's, it's just crazy. Okay. And Damn. I mean, when you're on a bike pretty much every day for a year and a half, it's, there's just a lot that can happen. I do want to bring it back to what you were saying about your father and the slideshows that you were putting on the wall, because I remember you saying that every single photo that went up had a story to tell. And I feel like every time that you're sharing a photo or I see a photo of yours or you're on a trip, they all have a story to tell. And I think it would be cool if you shared your like three most favorite photos that have stories to tell. Yeah. I mean, I think for any photographer, that's kind of hard to be like, these are my three favorite. This is my favorite. But yeah. I definitely have a few photos in mind that have, you know, that are special to me and like kind of stick in my memory. So cue the. <laughs> 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 look at that man wow look at that one wow 4k i can do it <laughs> i feel like i'm there <laughs> now this one right here was um actually on the pan am trip and it was from um like a ride to dead horse alaska which is actually like the tip it's as far north as you can drive in um the western hemisphere and it's called a town called Dead Horse. It's way up in the Arctic. It's really gnarly. It's depressing. Definitely. It's really depressing. Yeah, yeah. One thing they say about it is all that far and still no bar because it's like a so oil. Yeah. All that far and still no bar. There's no alcohol allowed in this whole zone. Oh, oh wow. Jesus Which Christ. is a bummer. Yeah, it's a huge <laughs> bummer. No, no, because it's not, like a it's like oil us. zone, right? Like everyone there, it's just an oil field like uh, town, I guess. Like yeah. if you can even call it a town. But if there was to be like alcohol, or whatever, like everyone out there's, I mean, there would be gnarly like oil spill mistakes, mm, stuff wow. like that. So you know what I mean? So they out, yeah, they do like periodic raids and just like whoa, throw people in the slammer for having like a fifth of whiskey or something like. Wow. It's gnarly, Damn. right? Anyway, so this photo is from that ride on the Pan Am up to Dead Horse and back. Basically, <laughs> trying to get the facts straight here. But um, I got like super frost nipped on that ride. Like I don't even know how to describe what it's like to ride for days in like below freezing temperatures with rain, with like the fatigue, the physical and mental fatigue is so gnarly. And then for any of you that have like been that cold, like it takes about 30 minutes for your hands to stop stinging. And that just makes photos so hard. And that's like one reason this photo is so special to me is because like, it took 30 minutes for my hands to thaw out to where I could click the shutter. Like, no lie, right? No, and to even, like, so take cool. my camera out of my yeah. pannier is, like, yeah. 
it didn't just happen. Like we we're there just like, like it's so much pain waiting to like use our extremities. <laughs> you, had work, you had to work <laughs> for it. Yeah. And so the photo, which you can see here, um, is when my buddy's, uh, the chain on my buddy's bike broke and we're in the middle of the Arctic. There's a storm coming. And if this, if we didn't get over this mountain pass in time, we would have been stuck there for God knows how long. So there's like all this stress of like, man, can we even get over the pass? Like, how do, how do we get out of here? Like, we don't have the right parts to fix it type of thing. So there's just all these different things going on. And it's just like kind of brings back crazy memories to me. And, and I just remember how hard I worked to take that photo. And like, it's, that's something to me that you can't manufacture. Like you can't just go do that on a shoot. That's like yeah. something that is, you know, irreplaceable. It's you're like, li you're living it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It was worth the search, some would say. Worth the grind. Worth the grind. So that's one photo that's really special to me. The second photo that I guess is maybe one of the favorites are up there is... Whoa. This oh, right wow. <laughs> this was a mountain called Alpamayo. It was It was really big. It was really cold. And from... Um, for, so, for a long time, this was kind of like my personal climbing, like goal i'm like if i climb any mountain this is the one i want to do this was in the andes mountains in peru it took about five days to get back here uh, we hired like um a like burrow well a, i guess like a guy who owns some donkeys or burrows so we took all our shit back there took five days my friend alan got super sick like puked and shitted his brains out for a day well alan alan <laughs> oh my god got sick from altitude okay so we finally get up to high camp and all that to say that it's just like every day when you're like like really working i mean it's just yeah. it's so far i don't even know how to explain how like far it is to get just to like see the mountain right so we finally get to high camp and we're all psyched like i feel like that's the hard part is hauling all your gear on your back and obviously on the burrow as well to get there like th that's the grind the fun part is climbing right like that's that's what we're there for and this was a mountain like as you can see it was crazy just aesthetically beautiful so we wake up in the morning and there's a fresh avalanche down the route that we're going to climb and we're, we kind of like stand there like we wake up early before the sunrise but we could see the avalanche and we're like hmm maybe we should wait another day because a week or two before five people had died on that same route same avalanche like pretty much there's just like this this um the route is kind of like a funnel for like Ciroc fall and ice fall and, and avalanche debris so we're like let's give it another day damn we wait another day and for the next morning and the storm hits so it's this three-day storm that kind of like full whiteout, and there's pockets of um pockets that it would clear and we could see the mountain and like every morning we'd wake up and and like there would actually be like the storm the storm would subside for a little bit but there would be another fresh avalanche for three days and and it was like such a disappointing and frustrating thing because at that point you've d you've done so much work to get there so you're like man should we roll a dice and just climb it like what are the odds that an avalanche breaks when we're climbing like should we just you know roll the dice yeah. and climb it so that i feel like for a climber and for myself like the hardest thing is to turn back from something like it's way easier mentally to just go do it at that point because you've done the hardest you've done the hard work already yeah 
And I think like having the self-control to turn back from something because the risk and the, and the odds are a little too high is such a gnarly thing to kind of, you know, get over. So that's what that mountain represents to me. And, um, it was, I don't, I don't know. It's just like crazy thinking back on it because we were actually trying to climb a mountain across the valley. And because the storm hit, like we couldn't get there. And if the storm hadn't hit, you know, we would have been there at the time that this avalanche um, hit and like killed a couple climbers. So like thinking about all that stuff, if like things had been different by like a few, by a day or a yeah. few hours, like yeah. we would have been the people Jeez. on that mountain. So things like that, basically that mountain represents, you know, like that backstory and like the, the self-control it takes to like turn back from something that is like, you want it so bad, right? But like, it's just, it's just the risk is a little too yeah. high. But what I is think there could have been a life changing. Yeah, what could yeah. have and like I think that's kind of what keeps me psyched to keep climbing is like that's you know, the mountains are so powerful and beautiful and like I I just don't have words for them, but it's they just humble you, you know? And like when you get shut down like that, they're just so much more magnificent in my mind, you know what I mean? It's not yeah. like this it's like it's not like this thing you kinda of climb and conquer. It's like this crazy force of nature that yeah. you're you're experiencing and like sometimes you just are humbled by it and it's an amazing experience well, you yeah. know so that's definitely what that photo represents to me yeah for sure it's a beautiful one last photo <laughs> <laughs> this is actually another climbing story and um this one as you can see is a little more intense this was actually taken seconds after I dug my buddy Jeremy out of an avalanche. Oh. So you can see here my like headlamp Jeremy. is illuminating him and I like took a couple photos and then we left. <laughs> but long story short, this was in Peru as well in the Andes. Um, we got same kind of situation and we got stuck at high camp at 18,000 some feet for three days. Every day it was snowing. Finally, the storm let up and we were out of food and we we're like, all right, we can either leave right now or we can take a step at the summit because it was like we woke up at 2 a.m. The sky was clear and we decided to roll the dice and gamble. And I think with climbing, like things are rarely ever perfect. Like, yeah, you know, if you it would be more ideal to give the snow a few days to sit, you know, like fresh snow. But like we had been waiting for three weeks for that three-day weather window, so it's like, you know what I mean. Sometimes yeah. you kind of take these risks. Good enough. Yeah. So we decided to go for it. We pushed for the summit. We're about nineteen thousand feet, and um, I'm climbing behind my friend Jeremy. He's we're connected with a rope, and I just hear this like really like soft whoosh. It just sounds like whoosh. And I look up and my headlamp just illuminates like a river of snow oh falling God. down. And my friend was, he just disappeared. That's everyone's <laughs> worst fear right there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, honestly. And I don't know how to explain it, but like it literally felt like a bad dream because like in a dream, you know, when you're getting chased, you're like trying to run, but you can't and you move in slow yeah, motion. It, it was like the same thing. Really. Because were you under any snow at that point? I wasn't under any snow because we were separated by this crevasse and if you don't know what a crevasse is it's like this really gnarly crack in the glacier because essentially a glacier is like a like a river of ice that's moving and flowing downhill and when it bends and turns it it cracks and like opens these big things called crevasses so the avalanche drained into this crevasse right ahead of me like 30 feet 
Um, and that's the only reason it didn't bury me as well. But uh, right away, I was like, you know, he's probably dead. He probably got drained into the crevasse. Like, there's so much... Like, I've never had my life flash before my eyes, but I've heard people talk about it. But it was like a similar thing where, like, wow. so many things were going through my mind. I'm like, I need to do this. I need... If he's dead, I need to, like, go back to town, get help, come back, like, find his body. Like, all this stuff is yeah, happening yeah. in a second. It was... I don't even know how to no, explain right. it. But you were attached to him with a rope. I was attached to him yeah. by a rope, right. Oh, my God. So I try to... You know, I'm like... I start counting because I knew he had a few minutes to live. And I tried to move fast, but like I said, a bad dream. Like at nineteen thousand feet, you can only take like a step every three breaths or something. So I like trying. I'm trying to run, but I can only like step, take three breaths, step, take three breaths because wow. you're so fatigued and there's no oxygen. So I finally like pull the rope tight and I start digging, and I find him about five or six feet down. Fortunately, found his head, which if like when he got caught in the slide, he was kind of tumbling around. And it was honestly a, a bit of a miracle because if he had landed any differently, like say I'd found his like leg, I would have never got it. Yeah, he would have been buried in mm-hmm. and he can't breathe all the time. Wow. Yeah, so I found his head and immediately I just like all that was uh, uncovered was his head or his face and I couldn't do chest compressions or anything because he, he wasn't breathing when I found him. He was like purple and white and stuff. Wow. So I just started doing mouth to mouth. Never kissed a man. That's but right. <laughs> <laughs> Did mouth to mouth. Um, I just started punching him as hard as I could, screaming at him for. Wow, wow that's I don't know how long. Like it's hard to, it's hard to like keep track of time and something like that. It could have been five minutes. Could have been ten minutes. I have no idea. But I, I almost gave up because he wasn't coming to, and um, finally, like he, I just like kept giving mouth to mouth and like punching him as hard as I could. And he started breathing all faintly and I kept giving mouth to mouth. And then he kind of woke up and like spit out all the snow and like came to, right. Yeah. And it took another probably 20, 25 minutes to dig him out to where like you, when you're under snow, even if it's four feet deep, it's It's cement. Yeah. You can't do anything. So (coughs) dug him out. We got out of there, but this photo was from the moment that he finally climbed out of the hole wow so that was definitely an intense moment and to me i mean it just like brings back so many memories and i'm just grateful that he's alive is able to save his life that i'm alive and crazy. it's it's a, it's a special photo so it yeah. might not be like these photos might not be like these bangers right but yeah. for me like what's really special about images and and stories is like is the what's behind them right? yeah like the sure. stories behind them that's what makes something valuable yeah um so from and, his recollection when <coughs> he got hit by the snow was he alive and trying to dig out because when i've heard and i think i heard this when i was a kid that you spit when you're under snow and that's spit. how you know which way is up because hmm. well, your spit will go down with the gravity so you know if i'm upside down i have to dig the opposite way He's probably passed out. So I wonder if he got hit by the snow and absolutely passed out, or if he tried to dig and it was just too dense. No, he definitely, like, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if he knew that. I didn't didn't even know that, actually. Um, But you're kind of disoriented because he had gotten spun around. Yeah. But basically, in his recollection, he started, you know, he felt the slide break. He's buried under snow. He's trying to swim to the top. It's settled because it happened really fast. He probably slid, you know, 50 feet, only 50 feet, but he was buried pretty deep. And he said he dug like a little cavity for, you know, air wow. and just fell asleep. He's like, 
this is the end of my life. Yeah. I fell asleep. So it was wow. pretty pain. Like I had the gnarlier wow. experience because yeah, I'm yeah. like, oh my god, yeah, like, yeah. my home. friend's dying. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? He just fell asleep. He like got wow, got like like dozed off. Right. Wow. It's <laughs> wow. actually pretty peaceful. That sounds to die peaceful. Yeah, good for him. He was like, yeah. you know what? Let me just get ten more seconds <laughs> and think about my. The line, <laughs> right, that is but, really but then he woke up to me giving him mouth to mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, but so that he definitely had the the mellower crazy. experience out of the two of us. That's wow, really crazy. But that's the story behind that photo. And like, I mean, there's a million other photos that I have that are special, but you know, those are three that I think have like a unique story behind them, and um, are kind of stick. You know, fresh in my memory yeah it sounds like you've had a crazy young life and it is definitely inspiring and we've we've seen you in moments like that as we've been talking about with these trips and everything but we're curious i'm sure everyone listening is curious do you have any trips planned or do you have any crazy photo trips or anything come down the pipeline that that you'd care to share yeah, I mean, I, I think I speak for everyone when I say all my plans were canceled because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I great was, point. <laughs> I had a few expeditions planned this year. Um, Norway, Alaska, Mount Denali, um, Canada, I had some climbs planned. Indonesia. <laughs> Indonesia, a Damn. sailing surf trip through Indonesia. A lot of international. Yeah, man. So I think I, I'll kind of just wait to see what happens next year. I, I mean, we're all kind of just waiting to see what happens. Yeah. But as far as like trips go, that's kind of, you know, I'm just waiting to see if things will open up, if borders will open up. But in my personal career, I mean, there's a lot of projects I've been doing, um, you know, on the commercial, like professional end of things, which I've been fortunate enough to have plenty of work through all of this, which is awesome. But I'm kind of low-key working on a book from the Pan Am trip. Oh, so that's go. kind of a slow moving train, but yeah. I'm grinding away at it. That's so I, awesome. I hope to kind of have like a mix between like a actual book and like a coffee table, like photo heavy and copy heavy. So that's what I'm working on during all of this. And we'll see what the future holds. I'm psyched to keep getting after it. It's like to keep surfing, keep climbing and kind of, you know, push the ceiling. Yeah. So that's kind of what the future looks like. And hopefully we covid goes away we can finally do stuff again yeah, straight up. cheers to that well, hell yeah cheers appreciate that. you coming cheers out that. we always love hanging out with cheers. you man yeah, yeah always boy. a pleasure yeah. man yeah. we'll keep doing this stuff so. thanks james yeah!